0: Chapter 3, Part 2 of Melmoth the Wanderer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Melmoth the Wanderer by Charles Robert Maturin. Chapter 3, Part 2. He never recovered his reason. The family deserted the mansion rendered terrible by so many misfortunes. One apartment is still tenanted by the unhappy maniac. His were the cries you heard as you traversed the deserted rooms. He is for the most part silent during the day, but at midnight he always exclaims in a voice frightfully piercing and hardly human, THEY ARE COMING, THEY ARE COMING, and relapses into profound silence. The funeral for Father Olavida was attended by an extraordinary circumstance. He was interred in a neighboring convent, and the reputation of his sanctity, joined to the interest caused by his extraordinary death, collected vast numbers at the ceremony. His funeral sermon was preached by a monk of distinguished eloquence, appointed for the purpose. To render the effect of his discourse more powerful, the corpse, extended on a bear, with its face uncovered, was placed in the aisle. The monk took his text from one of the prophets, Death is gone up into our palaces. He expatiated on mortality, whose approach, whether abrupt or lingering, is alike awful to man. He spoke of the vicissitudes of empires with much eloquence and learning, but his audience were not observed to be much affected. He cited various passages from the lives of the saints, descriptive of the glories of martyrdom and the heroism of those who had bled and blazed for christ and his blessed mother but they appeared still waiting for something to touch them more deeply when he inveighed against the tyrants under whose bloody persecutions those holy men suffered his hearers were roused for a moment for it is always easier to excite a passion than a moral feeling but when he spoke of the dead and pointed with emphatic gesture to the course as it lay before them, cold and motionless, every eye was fixed and every ear became attentive. Even the lovers who, under pretense of dipping their fingers into the holy water, were contriving to exchange amorous billets, forbore for one moment this interesting intercourse to listen to the preacher. He dwelt with much energy on the virtues of the deceased, whom he declared to be a particular favorite of the virgin and enumerating the various losses that would be caused by his departure to the community to which he belonged to society and to religion at large he at last worked himself up to a vehement expostulation with the deity on the occasion why hast thou he exclaimed why hast thou o god thus dealt with us why hast thou snatched from our sight this glorious saint whose merits, if properly applied, doubtless would have been sufficient to atone for the apostasy of St. Peter, the opposition of St. Paul, previous to his conversion, and even the treachery of Judas himself, why hast thou, O God, snatched him from us? And a deep and hollow voice from among the congregation answered, Because he deserved his fate. The murmurs of approbation with which the congregation honored this apostrophe half drowned this extraordinary interruption, and though there was some little commotion in the immediate vicinity of the speaker, the rest of the audience continued to listen intently. "'What?' proceeded the preacher, pointing to the chorus. "'What hath laid thee there, servant of God?' "'Pride, ignorance, and fear,' answered the same voice, in accents still more thrilling." the disturbance now became universal the preacher paused and a circle opening disclosed the figure of a monk belonging to the convent who stood among them after all the usual modes of admonition exhortation and discipline had been employed and the bishop of the diocese who under report of these extraordinary circumstances had visited the convent in person to obtain some explanation from the contumacious monk in vain it was agreed, in Chapter Extraordinary, to surrender him to the power of the Inquisition. He testified great horror when this determination was made known to him, and offered to tell over and over all that he could relate of the cause of Father Olavida's death. His humiliation and repeated offers of confession came too late. He was conveyed to the Inquisition. The proceedings of that tribunal are rarely disclosed but there is a secret report—I cannot answer for its truth—of what he said and suffered there. On his first examination, he said he would relate all he could. He was told that was not enough. He must relate all he knew. Why did you testify such horror at the funeral of Father Olavida? Everyone testified horror and grief at the death of that venerable Ecclesiastic who died in the odor of sanctity. Had I done otherwise, it might have been reckoned a proof of my guilt. Why did you interrupt the preacher with such extraordinary exclamations? To this no answer. Why do you refuse to explain the meaning of those exclamations? No answer. Why do you persist in this obstinate and dangerous silence? Look, I beseech you, brother, at the cross that is suspended against this wall and the inquisitor pointed to the large black crucifix at the back of the chair where he sat. "'One drop of the blood shed there "'can purify you from all the sin you have ever committed. "'But all that blood, "'combined with the intercession of the Queen of Heaven "'and the merits of all its martyrs, "'nay, even the absolution of the Pope, "'cannot deliver you from the curse of dying in unrepented sin.' "'What sin, then, have I committed?' The greatest of all possible sins! You refuse answering the questions put to you at the tribunal of the most holy and merciful Inquisition. You will not tell us what you know concerning the death of Father Olavida. I have told you that I believe he perished in consequence of his ignorance and presumption. What proof can you produce of that? He sought the knowledge of a secret withheld from man. What was that? THE SECRET OF DISCOVERING THE PRESENCE OR AGENCY OF THE EVIL POWER. DO YOU POSSESS THAT SECRET? AFTER MUCH AGITATION ON THE PART OF THE PRISONER, HE SAID DISTINCTLY BUT VERY FAINTLY, MY MASTER FORBIDS ME TO DISCLOSE IT. IF YOUR MASTER WERE JESUS CHRIST, HE WOULD NOT FORBID YOU TO OBEY THE COMMANDS OR ANSWER THE QUESTIONS OF THE INQUISITION. I AM NOT SURE OF THAT. There was a general outcry of horror at these words. The examination then went on. If you believed Olavida to be guilty of any pursuits or studies condemned by our mother or the Church, why did you not denounce him to the Inquisition? Because I believed him not likely to be injured by such pursuits. His mind was too weak. He died in the struggle, said the prisoner with great emphasis. You believe, then... It requires strength of mind to keep those abominable secrets when examined as to their nature and tendency? No, I rather imagine strength of body." "'We shall try that presently,' said an inquisitor, giving a signal for the torture. The prisoner underwent the first and second applications with unshrinking courage, but on the infliction of the water torture, which is indeed insupportable to humanity either to suffer or relate he exclaimed in the gasping interval he would disclose everything he was released refreshed restored and the following day uttered the following remarkable confession the old spanish woman further confessed to stanton that and that the englishman certainly had been seen in the neighbourhood since seen as she had heard that very night Great God! exclaimed Stanton, as he recollected the stranger, whose demonic laugh had so appalled him while gazing on the lifeless bodies of the lovers whom the lightning had struck and blasted. As the manuscript, after a few blotted and illegible pages became more distinct, Melmoth read on, perplexed and unsatisfied, not knowing what connection this Spanish story could have with his ancestor, whom, however, he recognized under the title of the Englishman and wondering how Stanton could have thought it worth his while to follow him to Ireland, write a long manuscript about an event that occurred in Spain, and leave it in the hands of his family to verify untrue things, in the language of Dogbury. His wonder was diminished, though his curiosity was still more inflamed by the perusal of the next lines, which he made out with some difficulty. It seems Stanton was now in England. About the year 1677, Stanton was in London, his mind still full of his mysterious countrymen. This constant subject of his contemplations had produced a visible change in his exterior. His walk was what Sallust tells us of Catiline's. His were, too, the oculi. He said to himself every moment, If I could but trace that being, I will not call him man. And the next moment he said, and what if I could? In this state of mind, it is singular enough that he mixed constantly in public amusements, but it is true. When one fierce passion is devouring the soul, we feel more than ever the necessity of external excitement, and our dependence on the world for temporary relief increases in direct proportion to our contempt of the world and all its works. He went frequently to the theatres, then fashionable when the fair sat panting at courtier's play, and not a mask went unimproved away. The London theatres then presented a spectacle which ought for to put to silence the foolish outcry against progressive deterioration of morals, foolish even from the pen of juvenal, and still more so from the lips of a modern Puritan. Vice is always nearly on an average. The only difference in life worth tracing is that of manners, and there we have manifestly the advantage of our ancestors hypocrisy is said to be the homage that vice pays to virtue decorum is the outward expression of that homage and if this be so we must acknowledge that vice has latterly grown very humble indeed there was however something splendid ostentatious and obtrusive in the vices of charles the Second's reign a view of the theatres alone proved it when stanton was in the habit of visiting them at the doors stood on one side the footmen of a fashionable nobleman with arms concealed under their liveries surrounding the sedan of a popular actress whom they were to carry off vi et armis as she entered it at the end of the play at the other side waited the glass-coach of a woman of fashion who waited to take Kynaston, the Adonis of the day, in his female dress, to the park after the play was over and exhibit him in all the luxurious splendor of effeminate beauty, heightened by theatrical dress, for which he was so distinguished. Plays being then performed at four o'clock, allowed ample time for the evening drive and the midnight assignation when the parties met by torchlight, masked, in St. James' Park, and verified the title of Wycherley's play, Love in a Wood, the boxes as stanton looked around him were filled with females whose naked shoulders and bosoms well testified in the paintings of lely and the pages of grammont might save modern puritanism many a vituperative groan and affected reminiscence they had all taken the precaution to send some male relative on the first night of a new play to report whether it was fit for persons of honour and reputation to appear at but in spite of this precaution at certain passages, which occurred about every second sentence, they were compelled to spread out their fans, or play with the still-cherished love-lock which Prynne himself had not been able to write down. The men in the boxes were composed of two distinct classes, the men of wit and pleasure about town, distinguished by their Flanders lace cravats, soiled with snuff, their diamond rings, the pretended gift of a royal mistress, N'import whether the duchess of portsmouth or nell gwynne their uncombed wigs whose curls descended to their waists and the loud and careless tone in which they abused dryden lee and otway and quoted sedley and rochester the other class were the lovers the gentle squires of dames equally conspicuous for their white fringed gloves their obsequious bows and their commencing every sentence addressed to a lady with the profane exclamation of o oh, jesu or the softer but equally unmeaning one of i beseech you madame or madame i burn one circumstance sufficiently extraordinary marked the manners of the day females had not then found their proper level in life they were alternately adored as goddesses, and assailed as prostitutes. And the man who, this moment, addressed his mistress in language borrowed from Orondites worshipping Cassandra, in the next accosted her with ribaldry that might put to the blush the piazzas of Covent Garden. The pit presented a more various spectacle. There were the critics, armed capapi from Aristotle and Bozo. These men, dined at twelve dictated at a coffee-house till four then called to the boy to brush their shoes and strode to the theatre where till the curtain rose they sat hushed in grim repose and expecting their evening prey there were the templars spruce pert and loquacious and here and there a sober citizen doffing his steeple-crowned hat and hiding his little band under the folds of his huge puritanic cloak while his eyes declined with an expression half-leering, half-ejaculatory towards a masked female, muffled in a hood and scarf, testified what had seduced him into these tents of Kedar. There were females, too, but all in vizard masks, which, though worn as well as Aunt Dinah's in Tristram Shandy, served to conceal them from the young bubbles they were in quest of, and from all but the orange women, who hailed them loudly as they passed the doors." In the galleries were the happy souls who waited for the fulfillment of Dryden's promise in one of his prologues, no matter to them whether it were the ghost of Almanzor's mother in her dripping shroud, or that of Laius, who, according to the stage directions, rises in his chariot, armed with the ghosts of his three murdered attendants behind him. A joke that did not escape de Blanc in his recipe for writing an English tragedy. Some, indeed, from time to time, called out for the burning of the Pope, but though space was obedient to the boundless peace, which oped in Mexico and closed in Greece. It was not always possible to indulge them in this laudable amusement, as the scene of the popular plays was generally laid in Africa or Spain, Sir Robert Howard, Elkanah Settle, and John Dryden, all agreeing in their choice of Spanish and Moorish subjects for their principal plays. Among this joyous group were seated several women of fashion masked, enjoying in secrecy the licentiousness which they dared not openly patronize, and verifying Gay's characteristic description, though it was written many years later, mobbed in the gallery, Laura sits secure, and laughs at jests that turn the box demure. Stanton gazed on all this with the look of one who could not be moved to smile at anything. He turned to the stage— the play was Alexander, then acted as written by Lee, and the principal character was performed by Hart, whose godlike ardour in making love is said almost to have compelled the audience to believe that they beheld the son of Ammon. There were absurdities enough to offend a classical or even a rational spectator, there were grecian heroes with roses in their shoes feathers in their hats and wigs down to their waists and persian princesses in stiff stays and powdered hair but the illusion of the scene was well sustained for the heroines were rivals in real as well as theatrical life it was that memorable night when according to the history of the veteran batterton mrs berry who personated roxana had had a green-room squabble with mrs Bautell, the representative of statira about a veil which the partiality of the property-man adjudged to the latter roxana suppressed her rage till the fifth act when stabbing statira she aimed the blow with such force as to pierce through her stays and inflict a severe though not dangerous wound mrs Bautell fainted the performance was suspended and in the commotion which this incident caused in the house, many of the audience rose, and Stanton among them. It was at this moment that, in a seat opposite him, he discovered the object of his search for four years, the Englishman whom he had met in the plains of Valencia, and whom he believed was the same with the subject of the extraordinary narrative he had heard there. He was standing up. There was nothing particular or remarkable in his appearance but the expression of his eyes could never be mistaken or forgotten. The heart of Stanton palpitated with violence. A mist overspread his eyes. A nameless and deadly sickness, accompanied with a creeping sensation in every pore from which cold drops were gushing, announced the... Before he had well recovered, a strain of music, soft, solemn, and delicious, breathed round him, audibly ascending from the ground, and increasing in sweetness and power till it seemed to fill the whole building. Under the sudden impulse of amazement and pleasure, he inquired of some around him from whence those exquisite sounds arose. But, by the manner in which he was answered, it was plain that those he addressed considered him insane, and, indeed, the remarkable change in his expression might well justify the suspicion. He then remembered that night in Spain, when the same sweet and mysterious sounds were heard only by the young bridegroom and bride, of whom the latter perished on that very night. "'And am I, then, to be the next victim?' thought Stanton. "'And are those celestial sounds that seem to prepare us for heaven only intended to announce the presence of an incarnate fiend who mocks the devoted with airs from heaven while he prepares to surround them with blasts from hell?' "'It is very singular that at this moment— when his imagination had reached its highest pitch of elevation, when the object he had pursued for so long and fruitlessly had in one moment become as it were tangible to the grasp both of mind and body, when his spirit, with whom he had wrestled in darkness, was at last about to declare its name, that Stanton began to feel a kind of disappointment at the futility of his pursuits, like Bruce at discovering the source of the Nile, or Gibbon on concluding his history. The feeling which he had dwelt on so long that he had actually converted it into a duty was after all mere curiosity, but what passion is more insatiable or more capable of giving a kind of romantic grandeur to all its wanderings and eccentricities? Curiosity is in one respect like love. It always compromises between the object and the feeling, and provided the latter possesses sufficient energy, no matter how contemptible the former may be a child might have smiled at the agitation of stanton caused as it was by the accidental appearance of a stranger but no man in the full energy of his passions was there but must have trembled at the horrible agony of emotion with which he felt approaching with sudden and irresistible velocity the crisis of his destiny when the play was over he stood for some moments in the deserted streets it was a beautiful moonlight night and he saw near him a figure whose shadow projected half across the street there were no flagged ways then, chains and posts were the only defense of the foot-passenger, appeared to him of gigantic magnitude. He had been so long accustomed to contend with these phantoms of the imagination that he took a kind of stubborn delight in subduing them. He walked up to the object, and observing the shadow only was magnified, and the figure was the ordinary height of man, he approached it, and discovered the very object of his search the man whom he had seen for a moment in valentia and after a search of four years recognized at the theatre you were in quest of me i was have you anything to inquire of me much speak then this is no place no place poor wretch i am independent of time and place Speak if you have anything to ask or to learn. I have many things to ask, but nothing to learn, I hope, from you. You deceive yourself, but you will be undeceived when next we meet. And when shall that be? said Stanton, grasping his arm. Name your hour and your place. The hour shall be midday, answered the stranger, with a horrid and unintelligible smile. And the place shall be the bare walls of a madhouse, where you shall rise rattling in your chains, and rustling from your straw to greet me. Yet still you shall have the curse of sanity, and of memory. My voice shall ring in your ears till then, and the glance of these eyes shall be reflected from every object, animate or inanimate, till you behold them again. Is it under circumstances so horrible we are to meet again, said Stanton, shrinking under the full-lighted blaze of those demon eyes? I never, said the stranger in an emphatic tone, I never desert my friends in misfortune. When they are plunged in the lowest abyss of human calamity, they are sure to be visited by me the narrative when melmoth was again able to trace its continuation described stanton some years after plunged in a state the most deplorable he had been always reckoned of a singular turn of mind and the belief of this aggravated by his constant talk of melmoth his wild pursuit of him his strange behaviour at the theatre and his dwelling on the various particulars of their extraordinary meetings with all the intensity of the deepest conviction while he never could impress them on any one's conviction but his own suggested to some prudent people the idea that he was deranged their malignity probably took part with their prudence the selfish frenchman says we feel a pleasure even in the misfortunes of our friends a ploufant in those of our enemies, and as every one is an enemy to man of genius, of course, the report of Stanton's malady was propagated with infernal and successful industry. Stanton's next relative, a needy, unprincipled man, watched the report in its circulation, and saw the snares closing round his victim. He waited on him one morning, accompanied by a person of a grave, though somewhat repulsive, appearance. Stanton was as usual abstracted and restless, and after a few moments' conversation he proposed a drive a few miles out of London, which he said would revive and refresh him. Stanton objected, on account of the difficulty of getting a hackney-coach, for it is singular that at this period the number of private equipages, though infinitely fewer than they are now, exceeded the number of hired ones, and proposed going by water. This, however, did not suit the kinsman's views, and, after pretending to send for a carriage, which was in waiting at the end of the street, Stanton and his companions entered it, and drove about two miles out of London. The carriage then stopped. "'Come, cousin,' said the younger Stanton. "'Come and view a purchase I have made.' Stanton absently alighted, and followed him across a small paved court. The other person followed. "'In troth, cousin,' said Stanton, "'your choice appears not to have been discreetly made.' your house has something of a gloomy aspect.' "'Hold you content, cousin,' replied the other. "'I shall take order that you like it better when you have been some time a dweller therein.' Some attendants of a mean appearance, and with most suspicious visages, awaited them on their entrance, and they ascended a narrow staircase which led to a room meanly furnished. Wait here, said the kinsman to the man who accompanied them, till I go for company to divertise my cousin in his loneliness. They were left alone. Stanton took no notice of his companion, but as usual seized the first book near him and began to read. It was a volume in manuscript. They were then much more common than now. End of chapter 3, part 2